Welcome to podcast number 18 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business. Today's date is January 12th, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Harriet Gold. Harriet graduated from the University of South Florida with a BA in criminal justice. She was sought out by Equifax Claim Services and had worked with Progressive Insurance Company as a special investigator. Most importantly, she has owned Gold Investigations with offices in Fort Lauderdale and Atlanta, Georgia, working all matters of civil and criminal investigation. She has sat on the board of NALI and is a member of countless PI associations. I account Harriet as a friend and a colleague. Can't wait for you to hear this interview today. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather round my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears as a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Harriet. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, John. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show and trying to think about uh, how how long it's been since uh, uh, we've talked. And I guess it, last time we were in, I guess, Charlotte, North Carolina for Intellinet, right? Yeah, probably. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. So uh, welcome to the show. How's life down there in the greater Atlanta area? Hot Atlanta? Hot Atlanta is great. It's becoming a great city. I hosted the Nally Convention here several years ago, and it was great. And a lot of my investigator friends got to see what it was like here in Atlanta, but it's a great booming city, and we have a lot going on. And it's, you know, it's a lot of people are moving here from the north. They want to get out of uh, the, they want to get out of the north or other places of the country, and it's mm-hmm. really up and coming. Place. And a lot of uh, corporations are headquartered there too. So it's uh, yes, and we're getting more and more. Yeah, we're getting more and more. Um, you know, different some insurance offices have moved here. I mean, State Farm has a huge, huge office here that they had. They consolidated several different offices, and they're here, and they take up several big, huge buildings. And so there's different companies that are really doing a lot here. Mm. Um, you know, it's good. And uh, I wanted to ask you because, you know, it's been a while since we've talked and I, I never really got your backstory. So why did you decide to become a PI and what did your original idea look like? Um, my original idea when I went to college is that I was going to become a lawyer. That was There was no other doubt about what I was doing. I was a criminal justice. I first started off being a psych major, then I Decided I didn't like the last class of my psych major, which was perception, because it was something to do with biology, and I was never into science. Mm-hmm. So I quit my last. I quit my psych degree literally one class away from a degree in it. Oh. I decided to do um, criminology. So I'll tell you, I feel like I have just about a major in psych, and that would not be lying. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went into criminology at. Um, the school I was in in my sophomore year, which is Illinois State University. Okay. For on a student exchange program from University of South Florida. And then I went to um, back into USF and I went into the criminal justice program, which I absolutely adored and thought it was just so interesting. And I felt like it was my way. 
I was on my way to going to law school. And as far as I knew, I was going to law school. And um, kind of at the end of it, I, the LSATs and I didn't get along. Okay. And I didn't have great scores, but I had a very good grade in, in my criminal justice program. And um, one of the last things I did, which was fascinating, probably the best, coolest job I've ever had in my life, is that I worked with a criminal circuit court judge as his intern, and I was his first college intern. And he was in Tampa, Florida, and um, unfortunately, he um, committed suicide years later, which was very sad. But wow. at the time that I was his intern um, in 1977, he was a phenomenal judge named Harry Lee Coe, and I love him. And he was just a phenomenal friend of mine all those years. And he became the state attorney of Hillsborough County. But when I was working with him, I like spent three months, four months hanging out with him, literally in the back court and learning all about um, how cases are go on in the court and what kind of things go on and getting to really talk to Judge Coe as a real person and not like feeling afraid of talking to a judge because I always got to discuss cases with me and he'd honestly ask me my opinion. We'd sometimes go to this little place in downtown Tampa called Goodies. It was old hamburger place. Mm. Talk about cases in a way that I could just talk to him. And I started really just getting so interested in law and how things were decided and how people came to get what they were doing. And it was just, it was something now looking back on it. I understand now why I liked investigating, but that's not what I thought I was doing then. Okay. I, I worked with the state attorney's office. I was one of the only women that was around there that was working in that division. And sometimes I was taken to hospitals to interview battered women. And um, they, there was very, very few women at that time. And I worked along with a lot of the people that were the assistant DAs and actually the public defenders of his division. And some of them went on to be judges. And um, it was just a fascinating experience where I learned really the backcourt. And that was very interesting. But um, I ended up getting accepted to law school. And um, but it was too far away. And I didn't have any money. <laughs> so that kind of made it, it was out of state and I, it was just not a question. And then all of a sudden I found myself, oh my gosh, graduating college and not having a job. And I worked at the clerk's office in Tampa and made $3 and four cents an hour wow. as a, as a clerk. Mm-hmm. And finally I quit and I went to work as a probation aide for a while. And I didn't really like that. I worked at a halfway house for people on probation. And then um, I decided that I just needed to see what else was out there. So I turned in my, I think, one month notice and I was looking for another job. And literally the morning I got home from an overnight stay at this work, I got a call from some company called Equifax. Mm-hmm. And they told me that they had. They wanted to have me come down for an interview. And I was a little like had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't know who Equifax was. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was trying not to be dumb because someone's asking me to come down for an interview when I'm literally like just turned in my notice. It's just very odd timing. And I like how to get them. I finally just asked them. I said, how did you get my resume? I said, did you get it from the student placement service at USF? And they said, yes, because I couldn't even understand how they get my resume. Mm-hmm. And I went there and they hired me. Okay. So I spent the next year and a half or two working in Tampa in St. Pete. And I literally learned by trial and error. I got, I was given a whole stack of files to go investigate. And I had little papers I filled out and I dictate cases and I like little by little trial and error figured out what I was doing. And they didn't really give me a time to teach 
me what I was doing. I just kind of did it. Mm -hmm. And I went out and I investigated every kind of claim from a disability claim, talking to neighbors about their neighbor. um, Activity checks. Activity checks. That's what they call them. $27. Disability claims. Um, I would work on a status of disability case. I would work on arson investigation. I didn't do the cause and origin part, but I did the who did it and why part. Mm-hmm. So Talked to neighbors about that. And I learned my way at that time around the courthouse, which became very important for everything else I've done in my life in investigating. I learned my way around the courthouse. And I spent hours and hours in the courthouse. And I found out that... Um, Tying up to times in college, I really liked the researching part. And I used to get A's on a paper that I had a right to research about something, but I didn't like philosophical questions. I more liked go research something and I do all the research, but I hated writing the reports, which (laughs) is still kind of how it is at this time years later. I (laughs) don't like writing the reports. But all the researching I find is really interesting. So it's very interesting how that paid off. And as we mentioned off air before we started, uh, Equifax was my first investigative job after I left the police department. So it was in uh, about the same time period. That's why I knew that the activity check was a $27 flat rate. Yeah, I still remember that. My God, you know. It was, um, and I did life insurance investigations. Right, death, death, uh, contestable death, right? contestable death claims. And I did um, just finding out if something was a suicide or homicide. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot about death investigations. And I learned a lot about, uh, I did property theft. I did theft investigations. I did mit- property damage investigations. I remember being in downtown Atlanta I moved to Atlanta with Equifax, and I remember like being in a warehouse all day with the head of Wolf Camera. It was a big, big camera company, photography company in Atlanta for years. Wasn't uh, Equifax? Of, all, wasn't Equifax also headquartered in Atlanta? They mistaken. were headquartered in Atlanta, but I wasn't part of the credit part. I was in part of the insurance claims, and their part was at Century Center, okay, big office park in Atlanta. Okay, um, I. Remember sitting in the one day with the, I think one of the heads of Wolf Camera in their big warehouse because they got a bunch of boxes of cameras in that were wet. And we had to go through literally every box to see if it was damaged or not. So I've done so many things. I've met so many people. And I think, you know, I really feel like as much as I did not like Equifax in the fact that I was promised a job as a senior investigator and then they had some people that they hired to be fire investigators and I all of a sudden lost this big promotion that I was supposed to get, which would have doubled my salary. Um, One of the things that I felt like I learned then is really how to investigate because Mm -hmm. I look back on it and that's, I think, what a lot of people are missing that how could people ask me and have asked me over the years, you know, how do you, how do you get to do what you do? And I'm like, go do slave work for 10 years and come talk to me mm-hmm. because yeah. really that's what it was like. I worked every day. I got a pile of cases. I would go on, I would look in my map book. Right which was what they used before computers, because no, there were not computers, there were not fax machines. Sometime during my time in the early 2000s, when I worked at Equifax, all of a sudden we got fax machines, and that was like a huge deal. Mm-hmm. But there were no computers, and we got we typed up reports because I dictated them. Right. <laughs> Typists would type them. Right. And... Um, but really, literally, I'd get a stack of files every day. It was probably eight to 10 files. I'd get out my map book. I'd plot around my time. And Atlanta is my last, you know, three years or two and a half years with Equifax was here in Atlanta. And I plotted my day and I would take off. And one moment I'm in West Paces Ferry, which is a 
where the governor lives, very fancy area of Atlanta. And then the next time I would be in one of the projects of Atlanta. And that was my day. And I would, you know, at that point, I had to be mostly dressed in a dress because that was what was proper for a woman to wear. And my counterparts were in pants and, a sh- and, f- and shoes, men. They were wearing, you know, khakis and a shirt. And I was wearing a dress because that's what I was supposed to be wearing. No, I, I remember back in my day, a little bit earlier in time, it was a, a business suit with a tie. I had a, a non-air-conditioned car. <laughs> and, right, uh, non-air-conditioned car. And it was the same thing. You know, I would, I would get my stack of files and I would plan, like you did, out, out of the book, you know, uh, the cross streets, how I would go from one place to one place. And I'd work my way home every night, I'd go into the city and then work my way home out to the suburbs every uh Every day. and uh, I, That's I exactly. Except but, I lived in the city. I was, you know, single and carefree at the time. Okay. You didn't have to do something I had to do. You got the benefit of walking in flat shoes. Try doing this in heels. I would be walking on people's driveways. I would be walking on a yard. Yeah. Be walking down neighborhoods with heels on, oh. with stockings. Oh, boy. So yeah. that's a whole different thing. And that's like how I lived you know, as my time and investigator, that starting. was what the outfit was. Starting out, sure. No, I, I, I understand. And um, I, I think, though, there was one thing that I can, I can talk about from positive was, was that um, we understand from seeing it real time in real paper what credit headers were back before they became computerized because we were able to get through our work at Equifax. We were able to go into the retail credit and pull out the, the credit headers and see, you know, what information they had there. So, yeah. I don't think I did that. I think we nope. learned out. Oh, no. I, oh, oh, okay. I'm, I apologize, Harriet. My experience <laughs> was different than yours. Um, I was in the sixth. I, think- I was in the sixth floor of uh, a building down in this, uh, the center of Philadelphia. And we were attached as a claims department right next to the uh, the credit bureau. Well, so were we, but we were told, no, you can't do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, oops, I'm sorry. Well, you know, hey, wait a minute. Uh, might have been a different time, too. My, I was uh, 78, so I don't know when you were, but uh, I was 78. So it could have been a change in the, uh, the laws related to it. So I'll, I'll give myself the fact that I wasn't doing anything illegal. But right. at least it, uh, it, it years. I think the headers weren't illegal, actually. Right. So, but that's what, that's where they all came from, and that's how I knew how they were aggregated, and that and the and the uh, Polk directories or the the Con- uh, oh, Donnelly yeah. directories. Oh Polk directories. Yep. Polk directories is a city directory that had all the information about the neighbors and the people's name and and a phone book. Mm-hmm. If I needed old information, I would call up. I would go to the library, or I call the library. I had a case one time where I had to find a bunch of people when I worked there. They were all people that had worked for a company. I think they were looking at it. They said it was like a research, but I think it was more like probably an asbestos claim. And I was talking to people that used to work for such and such company back in the 1940s and 50s. And I had to find them either. They asked, they passed me with trying to find their death certificates or finding out, um, where they were at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had to literally hunt them down, either hunting them down themselves or hunting down their family, hunting down a friend that I was told might know where they were. But my source of information at that time, a lot was the U.S. post office in little tiny towns. They were a wealth of information. We'd get them on the phone, we'd talk to them, and they would tell us you know, oh, so-and-so used to live there, but no, he moved off to Hawaii 20 years ago. But you know, so-and-so still lives in town, and maybe they know where it is because I get up there and call, who knew, who worked there about 50 years ago or 40 years ago? And that was my conversation, and I found like 90% of the people that I was looking for. And that's kind of what I knew I could find people. Yeah. Because I did a lot of those. I found them either dead with a death certificate or I found out. What happened to them? Well, I, um, I got to brag. That was pretty cool. I got to brag on you even more because when I was doing the missing air research, I hired Harriet Gold 
and she found a homeless man living underneath an overpass for me. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, that, and that gentleman had some psych issues, but he, uh, he understood that uh, somebody in his family had passed and that he was going to become the uh, beneficiary to a, quite a healthy estate. But you helped me track that guy down. And it's a fun thing to call people and tell them that they have money coming to them. Yes. That is really fun. I've gotten to do that several times, not just with you, but with, I've had plaintiff attorneys that have asked me to do that. I have had, I've done it for insurance companies. My insurance companies as have time spent way more money than they owed the person to just find them because they have a duty to try to find them. Mm-hmm. And that still happens. And I help find them. I have found people all over the world. Mm-hmm. I have, I use my range of investigators that I know to help me all over the world. And it makes me, I feel be a better investigator because that's, I think what my years of being investigator has done is that it's giving me a big path of wonderful people. Well, going Uh, back, I mean, you, you got the foundational learning in a non-digital world. So you knew how right. this, this data was aggregated. You knew what was garbage in, garbage out. You knew how to look in the margins of something that was written, that you might find some information that was handwritten in a margin of something. And, That's what yeah. scanning, scanning court files now misses that. And it really still makes me annoyed when I can't pick up and get copies of paper on my own. And I have a court clerk trying to scan the file. Mm. And it's missing the little note from the judge or some other little miscellaneous notes that someone forgot to scan into the file and it's not there and it was in the old file. Right. Or they're making a decision on what they think is important and it's certainly not what I might think was, is important. True. So I'm still missing that, but I know that it's there. So a lot of time it for researching, it really helps to know that it was there or how you know, and how, what exists about it. So I think that's really very important that people don't know. If you've only researched court records on the computer, you don't know that if you think you're checking a whole county, people used to the most, you know, the largest investigative companies have called me and they used to think that Cobb County, Georgia, they would argue with me and telling me, well, all of Cobb County is online and I'd argue with them. No, it's not. And they would tell me, yes, it is. And I'm like, no, it's not. And they're like, well, we have it. And I'm like, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. They're like, why? I said, well, aren't you concerned if someone has a misdemeanor and they have a DUI? And they're like, of course so. I said, well, that is not online. Mm-hmm. So if you think you're getting it, you're not, and you're missing Cobb County. Mm-hmm. And they like blown away doing huge background investigations and missing a whole part. So if you don't understand what might be in the courthouse and know that you're getting everything, you're missing it. It's true. So us, us people that have that history, we know where the data was aggregated manually and how it was created. So then we can look at something that's, that is now giving us digital information and we have a reason to pause and say, hmm. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't look right. Uh, it's just not right. And we knew from the original aggregation how it should be. And now we're seeing something that doesn't look, it looks sparse. And, you know, uh, where there's a, a supposed no record, ah, that's what you're saying. Well, wait a minute. Maybe there is. And I, right. I, I agree with you 100%. So after Equifax, um, what your next how did you get started in your own business? Let's just let's just take you there. Okay, well, after Equifax, I went to work for totally left the field in a lighting business, which had nothing to do with nothing other than it taught me my way around working for a good company and what it was like. And I left that. And one day, I, as I was looking for another sales job, two and a half years later, I walked into this company and. Miami, and um, I saw the name on the door, and it just got me curious. And I was like, "What is this about?" And it was this company um, um, that ended up being a Miami investigation company. And um, and the guy that was talking to, I started talking to the guy, and he's like, 
wow, your background sounds so cool. Um, I said, oh, gosh, I'm not looking for another investigator. And he was like, but it sounds like you really like it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not looking for another investigator job. I'm going to do sales. No, no, no. So he goes, well, let me have your resume. And I'm like, no, okay. So about a month later, he calls me again. He goes, well, you're still not looking for a job. And I'm like, I don't know. That was exactly. And he was like, well, why don't you come talk to us? And I'm like, okay. So I went there and they hired me. It was so weird. I just like didn't even, again, it just kind of popped into my life where I didn't even know. I mean, that's not how you go about looking for a job. It's like being so whatever about it. But that's ended up how I got this job. And so I worked for that company and worked on some big, I learned how to do criminal investigation at that time. And I didn't even know I knew how to do criminal investigation, but I certainly jumped into it, worked on the defense of one of the biggest drug lords of all time, who I don't want to mention. Mm -hmm. I did work on a very big criminal case and I worked on several, I worked on the defense of a rape case which I had just worked at a rape crisis center. And I believe that all rapists were guilty until I investigated this one and found out that he wasn't because I had known what rape victims looked like. And this person that accused him was not acting like anybody that I had ever seen in two and a half years of working at a rape crisis center. So I got to start looking at facts and learning that what I knew as an insurance investigator, could be applied to all these different things. So I worked for a firm that did plaintiff work. I worked doing undercover investigations for a while. And finally, I decided that um, I'd had enough of everybody making money off of me. Right. You were mining somebody else's gold. (laughs) I was mining someone else's gold, and I decided to go off on my own. And I had, um, at that time, one insurance client that liked my work. And I had really made it from like getting one file from them to work to where they were a good part of my monetary income. And then a plaintiff attorney who offered me his his phone room of his law office to share space with if I would do some crazy deal of um, not charging him till the case is settled and he would pay my expenses. So... After about a year of that, I realized that that was not a good deal for me. And I wasn't, this was not financially feasible. And I changed around the arrangement. And um, since that time, I've really done a combination of both defense, mostly defense work and then I, and then plaintiff work and it's grown on me and I love plaintiff work. And I do now quite a bit of plaintiff work, but I, I have my key insurance work that I love doing and litigation. So I've now built um, built myself up to where I am now. But somewhere in the middle of this, after 13 years of having my own business, I kept getting my cash flow couldn't keep up. And that was very difficult. I, people weren't paying me on time. They were paying me, but not paying me on time. Mm. And um, I decided at that point to go work for one of my insurance clients as an in-house special investigation investigator, which was investigating fraud. And I went to go work for them, but they hired me with the idea that I'm going to go work for their lawyers and be an in-house investigator. And I literally shut down my offices, shut down my licenses and went to go work for them. And about a year later, my job changed as being just like fraud investigator, investigating jump in accidents, theft and fire cases on mostly vehicles. And that part I found very exhausting. And instead of being in the courthouse researching things, I was and interviewing people in law offices, I was more really dealing with people that were very bad, dangerous people. Okay. Very dangerous. And um, that was not what I wanted to do. So it took me three and a half, almost four years to figure that out. And I 
went back out on my own where I've been ever since. So since like 2004, 2005, I went back out on my own and I've been out on my own ever since then. And I don't, I would never go back. Right. And you've also grown it from being solo to where you have a staff and you you have other investigators. Yes. I have other investigators, both as, um, as a contractor or employees. And, um, I've, grown it and now I'm a person that really had uses the people that I've developed my associates I've developed over the years to help me in different locations who are licensed in those places to help me do the work that I need or people that specialize in some different task they do the work I need so really my job now is to figure out what needs to be done which I call, I'm just kind of running the show, which is, but it's a great show. I deal with the clients, mm-hmm. my clients. I, I really deal with a lot of my clients are either mostly law firms or insurance companies. And I really just love it. I've gotten to where I work on very large projects. Sometimes I work on little projects or a bunch of little projects, but I work on a lot of the larger type claims that there's nothing better than when my client tells me, Harriet, just do what you do. Mm. Get gold. That's my tagline. Get gold on it. Love it. And, um, my client, th- there's a very interesting story about that because one of my claims adjusters was telling me one day, I was like, are you sure you want me to do this? And she goes, you know, my boss loves you whenever she wants me to work on a claim, work when, whenever she wants you to work on a claim, she writes in the claim file, get gold on it. And we happened to be at a NALI convention right after that. And I, um, I told some friends of mine about, that's what my client was saying. And then they started singing to me, get gold on it get gold on it. And right after that, I bought the domain name, get gold on it.com. Love it. Go That's today good. to get gold on it.com. You'll find it going to right to gold investigations. Cool. That's great. So, That's a great story. Now, um, not all my listeners are, uh, know the inside for the acronym NALI. So let's just talk about NALI for a second and then how that, oh, net, yes. net, how that net, networking has been for you. Oh, NALI is just a, phenomenal organization that I have been in since I think it's 92, 93 or 94. I'm sorry. I don't know the exact year, but Mm -hmm. we had a conference in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, um, where um, it's national association of legal investigators. And at the time when it was, when I first joined it, it was a very much a plaintiff and criminal defense oriented group Mm -hmm. for over the years, it's changed to a litigation investigation group, which is more descriptive of it. Mm. We have people in it that are from all different facets of litigation, but mostly either in personal injury or insurance defense, but people that do real street investigations Because of that is what I do, I tend to use a lot of people from NALI to do my work, and they've gotten to be family of mine all over the world. And I'm very, these are my, some of my closest friends in the whole world, because we have a lot in common. And I would highly recommend it for someone that's very experienced. I'm just such a fond lover of, of NALI. And um, I was I served on the board for seven years as a regional director, and I hosted a convention. I was I've always been a Nally, as I'll call it, cheerleader. It's probably the only place I've been a cheerleader because I'm not a cheerleader type, but in Nally I have been. And because I just tell people about this phenomenal organization where I've met the coolest people that have unbelievable great backgrounds and another organization that i've been in for years of a national nature is intelnet right and 
That's also a, I was in it longer than I was in an alley. I think I joined Intelnet in 91 or 92. Oh, okay. And I was the baby in Intelnet. Now I'm, I think, one of the older people there, <laughs> um, which is really kind of scary, but I really joined it. And I was really one of the babies in Intelnet. And unfortunately, a lot of people that I've known have passed on. Mm. But, you know, a lot of, and that's just like a different, some people, a lot of NALI members are also in Intelnet and vice versa, like yeah. you and I are in both. Right. But are, it's a great international group. And there's been other, you know, international groups that are also awesome for like CII is a phenomenal group. And, um, oh, and give, then, give the name for that. I think it's uh, uh, CII. Uh, Council of International Investigators. Right, exactly. So, and then I've also been involved in different state organizations like FALI, and I've also belonged to FAPI. There's different organizations in Florida, and I belong to both <laughs> because I think they're both great. And to I don't like discriminating against people, and I like them both. Yeah. There's sometimes politics in these organizations, and I just stay clear out of it yeah no i you know, we, so, we sat on the board together i think for a while there um i was a uh, northeast regional director when you were the uh, regional director for the southeast for nally and uh it was a good time we were, were trying to grow membership and trying to do some changes to make it a, a better and more accessible organization to uh to a, a good investigators around the country and I enjoyed I enjoyed our time together when we sat on um, sat on the yes. the council. But you know, it the the, the thing is that I, I was always impressed with that. If I didn't know somebody, I could call Harriet and she would know somebody. <laughs> you know, if uh, gee Harriet, do you know somebody that can do X, Y, and Z? And then you know, five minutes later, mm-hmm. I'd have the answer. And not only would I have the answer, but you'd probably already admit at that person several times over. So I didn't have to worry about whether this was a cold call or not. This was somebody that I knew that would do the job right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the last thing I want to do is tell you about anybody that I, and I will tell you what I've heard about this person. This is what they do, but I have never used them. Mm-hmm. So That's, don't come blaming me. Right. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of great people that I've used and, you know, as in any profession, there are some people that should not be doing this job. That's true. And believe that they're there and they're ashamed to our business and yeah. it does happen but you know on the whole you get someone that's in something like Intelnet or Nally you are getting someone that's already been vetted before they go in there and I'm not telling you that every single investigator in either one of these organizations is the most perfect investigator because I've had my own issues However, there's an organization that's there to support you. And both of these groups have have different processes for getting after different people that don't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing. And I think that's what you have over different, you know, I'm not sure the state organizations, there's not a lot of particular things that you have to do to get into a state organization. However, I sat on the board also of the Georgia Association of Professional Private Investigators, and there were people that we had to not admit or kick out of our organization for ethical issues. Right. And I've always believed in the fact that you have to be ethical, and that's very important to me. And I've learned a lot from people like Kitty Haley, who's, to me, the queen of ethics. Mm -hmm. And she is just the queen and she's written books and I'm proud to be, have someone like that as my good friend throughout all these years. And, you know, if you want to talk to somebody about ethics, talk to that person. Right. And criminal defense and knowing the people that I've known and, and Nally, I mean, Ellis Armstead, I mean, right. you know, I'm just telling there's people in Nally that are so amazing, so proud to know them and call them my friends. No, it's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a a story that I told Ellis and he was on the podcast. So it's not like uh, if my uh, listeners are going to hear a repeat, well, it's going to be a repeat for a good reason. My very first Nally conference 
was 2004. I was a speaker at that conference. So I was not only a brand new NALI member, but I was also a speaker. And it was in Indianapolis. And I remember we were at the uh, St. Elmo's Hotel for a dinner where the speakers and some of the re- regional directors were getting together for a nice you know, get-together dinner. Um, sort of like giving us a little prop for, you know, being, you know, flying there on our own dime and our own time to be speakers and to, you know, represent the the organization. And I remember sitting next to uh, Ellis and he was telling us about um, the, not so much the inside story, but the, um, the, the gravitas of what happened because he was a criminal defense investigator in the John Bonet murder Ramsey case. And the extent that the paparazzi and the uh, tabloids were going to to try to you know get information regarding this, and I and this is my first time at a at a, at a national organization, private investigators. I had been an SIU investigator for many years, and really didn't you know break bread with private investigators that much. And here I was listening to spellbound by this conversation by Ellis, and it was. It just told me about the professionalism that he carried with him, you know. Amazing. Yeah. and Amazing. And, and all week long during the, the conference, I just met more and more professionals like Ellis and uh, other investigators that just blew me away. And it just gave me an idea that, hey, if I, if I want to be a professional investigator, this is the organization to be a part of. These are people that I can not only emulate, but I can ask questions of, or I could talk to, and I could be on absolutely on their wavelength. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And and I look at this and I say to myself, now, okay, we're in the middle of COVID. That's not going to last forever, but eventually uh, we'll get back to having conferences again. And I think association membership is very, very important, but also association. Uh, uh, traveling to the conferences to support the association, but to do the network, right? Uh, I tell people that that is my, if, if there is something that I tell people all the time, when, especially, you know, during the seven years that I was a regional director for NALI, all different organizations, and I give people the same story, whether they're in one group or another, I said, go to the meetings have a cocktail with somebody, have a cup of coffee with them, have a chocolate cake with them, have an ice cream with them, whatever, sit up by the pool, smoke a cigar. I don't smoke cigars, but whatever mm-hmm. makes you happy, do that and become part of this. Because to me, that's what I have done consistently. I have gone to so many conferences. I've spoken at so many conferences. I've spoken all over the Southeast from Alabama and South Carolina and North Carolina and Florida and different law firms and insurance companies. And I have spoken to all these different groups of people. And by me getting out and talking to the people, I learn a lot and they learn a lot. And you get, this is how I've made my, when you get to know somebody and even with my clients, I am missing that right now. Mm. And by getting together and having a lunch with a client or having a cup of coffee or just gathering with my clients in their office, I'm missing that part of my business right now. Mm. I'm very busy. And I guess it's not that important, but it's always been something that I like to do because I feel like there's a little different thing that you could do after you've broken some bread with someone. Like, you know, getting into these people and being able to be contacted with these people and meeting them in person and finding out about their kids. And I just find that meeting people and talking to them about their lives, I'm finding in COVID now. It is really important. I have a lot of these people that I deal with, and they are at home with small kids trying to do what they do. Everybody from a lawyer to a paralegal to an insurance adjuster, mm-hmm. everybody's having a little different experience. And I sometimes end up talking to them five seconds about what our project is that we're talking about, and the other 45 minutes about life mm-hmm. because I feel like. Okay, she can relate. 
I just am very happy that my three children are not like young and running around the house when I'm trying to work. I can't yeah. even imagine. No, and to oh. your point, you know, it's it's interesting that we, you know, provide a service to clients. And uh, for years, I was always transactional. In other words, uh, I'll do the job the best way I can. I'll meet your needs. I won't let Fanny hang out in the breeze. I'll give you a great report at a good price. And the results will, are there. Come COVID, I started to call my clients up, of course, to see how they were doing, but also to see how they were doing. I mean, I really wanted to know how they were doing. And the conversations I had with my clients during the beginning of COVID were so telling and so uh, real. And it just made me realize that even though I was a good transactional uh, investigator, I really didn't have um, a partnership with my clients. I didn't really have any more of a relationship other than the cases I was working on with them, you know? So uh, if anything, this, this, uh, these last uh, eight months have done a lot to improve my people skills, uh, you know, maybe because we also have a little bit more time to talk than we did before. And uh, now that I have more time to speak with my clients and, and get to really know them better. And I know when this all, you know, the new normal happens. I'm not going to say when it blows over because it's not going to blow over. Uh, when, it, when the new normal happens, I'll have stronger relationship with my clients as a result of it. So, I will. I have so many places I want to go visit. I mean, mm. I have clients now in Chicago and all, Texas and, and Chicago and Philadelphia and Boston and, and all over the California and I have people all over and I'm just dying to go out there. I'm just like, you yep. know, I have a great client in Vancouver and I want to go to Vancouver. I want to go have it's dinner. I just want to go have dinner. I want to <laughs> go have lunch. I want to just go meet these people. I want to meet. I have one client that has given me tremendous amount of work and she's a single mom with two, two teenage kids at home. I now know her daughters and I, they're part of my life now because I call them. They already know, oh, Harriet's on the phone with mommy. You know, oh, she'll step out on her cell phone into the garage because that's where mm-hmm. she has to talk to me because they're in, in line going to school. And it's just a whole different relationship. But I have so many places I can't wait to go. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Delta is missing my mileage. I mean, I'm glad they <laughs> gave me another year to get a higher medallion member, yeah. but Delta is missing me in Southwest, <laughs> but mostly Delta is. Well, Delta is you know, headquartered out of Atlanta. So Delta's yeah. Out of, Delta's a, in, a right away. So yes, yeah. Delta, I'm a fan. Yeah. And they keep having that middle seat open. And so, but I like that a lot. Anywhere. My, anywhere really. Yeah. My daughter uh, had a fly. Delta and its uh, affiliate KLM, and she said that uh, was a very uh, safe experience, and that's the word I would use. I felt like it was very safe after I drove to South Carolina six hours away and came home, going through a convenience store to stop there for a minute, and no one was wearing masks, and no one was apparently remembering that it's COVID time. Is when I've told people, well, you can drive as long as you don't have to stop anywhere along the road. Yeah, because you're you're really in the airport. You're with a small group of people. I've gone early. I found in Atlanta early in the morning. There's no one at the airport. No one. I've walked right. up to security and walked through, and no one's been there. Literally, no one. Right. So one time I had to pick up someone at JFK, uh, which is a very busy airport, and the person I was picking up was the only person standing outside of uh, arriving. Can you imagine that JFK? You know, I believe it. I've been that way in Atlanta and yeah. Atlanta's like a ghost town. I've, mm. I've never seen Atlanta like that. And even I've been to Atlanta at one or two in the morning and there's been more people than there's been in the middle of the day at times. Atlanta It was very, very, very weird. I flew one of the first flights I flew was in early June in Atlanta and it was just unbelievable. I had just never seen it like that. When I walked right up to security mm-hmm. and there's nobody there. Right. I just couldn't, I could not get over it. I really, really couldn't. It was just shocking to me. And 
Yeah, it's a whole different. It's a whole different world. It but, is, but uh, <sighs> we'll have a new normal. Uh, of course, we will. Every, everything will be a new normal at some point. But uh, Harriet, how can my uh, listeners get in touch with you if they want to ask you any more questions? Well, they can um, go to my website, goldinvestigations.com or getgoldonit.com. Mm-hmm. It's easier to remember. Um, they can email me at harriet at goldinvestigations.com, which is H-A-R-R-I-E-T at gold, G-O-L-D, investigations with an S at the end, dot com. Or um, they can call my office number of 770-441. Eight nine one three. Harriet, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. If you have any comments, please leave them at the website. Our guest next week is Robert Dugoni. Robert is a critically acclaimed New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and number one Amazon bestselling author of the Tracy Crosswhite police series set in Seattle. He's also the author of the Charles Jenkins espionage series and the David Sloan legal thriller series. Several of his novels have been optioned for movies and television series. Tagoni is a recipient of the Nancy Pearl Award for Fiction and two-time winner of the Friends of Mystery Spotted Owl Award for Best Novels Set in the Northwest. He's also a two-time finalist for the International Thriller Award, the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction, the Silver Fashion Award for Mystery, and the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award. Robert Tagoni's books are sold in more than 25 countries and have been translated into more than two dozen languages. This was a wonderful interview, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.